0: Welcome, welcome. Just one bit of business note to remind you about the Stockwell Prize. Uh, The deadline is the end of this week. So those of you you who are going to enter that, please get your entry in. Don't worry too much about, you know, it's not an academic piece. You don't have to worry about the spelling and punctuation. It's all about the idea, so get those ideas in. Um, This is the last Media Agenda Talk. There aren't any next term, although we are going to continue with uh, lunchtime talks, so keep your eyes out uh, for Wednesday lunchtimes when we're going to have speakers coming in, especially with a sort of uh, quite a vocational uh, feel that might be helpful to people interested in careers in the media. Um, But this is the last Media Agenda Talk. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been great, the the responses we've had, and I'm really grateful to the people who've written uh, the blog articles about them as well. I think it's been, uh, we tried really hard to get diversity, obviously we we didn't cover (laughs) every aspect of media and communications, and of course I'd welcome your feedback, you know if you've got ideas of topics or people that we could have covered then let me know so that next year's uh, students will benefit. But we've had a great variety, all the way, if you remember Ben Hammersley's, Uh, optimism, partly fuelled by his new status as a dad, but I think, you know, his excitement about the internet. And then uh, Nick Davis uh, railing against uh, the Red Tops amongst other people. We had that lovely walk down the online Silk Road. Uh, We had PR lessons in leadership, and we had cultural lessons for Londoners. Uh, We had the scepticism of Norman Lewis, and we had the activism of Monique Villa. And then the last week, of course, we had uh, the global uh, vision of Lillian Landor from the BBC. And today's speaker will take us uh, into another world. Um, Sophia Money-Kootz, um works, I suppose you could call it the trade magazine for the British upper classes, uh, Tatler Magazine. Um, I first came across Sophia's work uh, when I read a wonderful feature. Uh, that she wrote about how the Scottish aristocracy were taking to the threat of the idea of Scottish independence. The answer was they weren't terribly thrilled with the idea. Um, It was a fantastic piece of writing and it gave me a very compelling insight into a kind of social or ethnic minority that I hadn't thought very hard about before. I then read Sophia's wonderful blog about a, a kind of documentary soap called Uh, Made in Chelsea, which again took me into a world uh, that I had not been to before. But what struck me um, watching the Posh People documentary um, was what it was saying as much about journalism as Posh People. I'm just going to play you a a clip from that in case. How many people have actually watched anything from Posh People? That's very good. We've done a bit, but the thing is, um, the thing is online. Uh, uh, the BBC player, so um, you know, please go and have a look at that. <laughs> got a little preview. What struck me, though, before Sophia comes up and talks, is, yeah, it's, it was great to see uh, posh people performing, um, some of them actually in the newsroom. Uh, and but, and it's true that Sophia has a, got a very exotic uh, beat, but what struck me was that the craft You know, their skills, their creativity was something that you see in newsrooms across the world. And Tatler is a really fertile breeding ground uh, for top feature writers. So this is a great chance to hear from one LSE alum, a graduate of this fair place, who has made it in magazines and is going to explain how that happened and what it's like to be a Tatler hack. So please welcome Sophia Monikius.
1: Um, Thank you, Charlie. Um, So, yes, I'm Sophia Monikutz, and I am Features Editor on Tatler. Uh, I don't know, well, some of you saw Posh People, so we'll have quite a good idea about the kind of mad and wonderful world of the magazine. Some of you may not have any idea, but I'm going to explain a bit first about how I got into journalism, Um, laced, hopefully, with a few kind of tips that some of you guys I hope will find useful. I don't know how many want to go into journalism um, or just um, here for the ride. And I don't know of you who want to go into journalism, whether that's papers or magazines or TV or online. Um, But I know, having been a student LSE 10 years ago I started, kind of how daunting it was amongst what felt like a sea of wannabe bankers and consultants and lawyers... Uh, to want to be a journalist. And I felt the kind of class clown because I had no idea about um, getting into journalism and everyone was basically banging on about their summer internships and their amazing salaries at Goldman Sachs that they have been going to get in the summer. And I had none of that. So I then kind of started doubting myself too. And I thought, Christ, maybe I should be a banker. Maybe, you know, maybe that is what we're all meant to do. Um, and help, how do I do that? So I did apply... Um, And I had kind of the world's worst interview with Morgan Stanley, um, having no banking experience whatsoever. And I rocked up. I did really a truly pathetic amount of research, which consisted of um, buying the FT and reading the headlines that day, which I seemed to think was going to be enough. And I went along to their offices uh, at Canary Wharf, and I had... um, Three rounds of interviews. I don't know how many of you guys might have thought about this, or you have three kind of twenty-minute interviews, basically, um, all completely terrifying. And in my case, completely dismal. But it was the last one, really, when the guy, um, the guy said, "So, Sophia, tell me, you know, why are you interested in, in M and A and coming to work uh, for the summer in M and A for us? And uh, and you know, what deals have you seen that are interesting?" And the only thing I could think of was the front of the FT that day had been about a steel deal, an Arcelor Metal steel deal. So I said, "Well, um, I think you know, there's this, this steel deal that sounds pretty good." He goes, "Right. Uh, why? Why do you think that sounds? Um, why do you think that sounds good?" And I said, "Well, I just think you know." Good companies good solid good good steel companies and um he showed me out and i remember going to the lift and being so i just wanted to die and the doors closed oh my god and i never even got a no from them i never heard from morgan stanley again which is so embarrassing um but there we go it wasn't my finest moment um but then i was still stuck because i still didn't know i was back to you know okay i do want to be a journalist i don't want to be a banker but there still aren't that many graduate trainee schemes. There certainly aren't very lucrative kind of summer jobs that you can get. And then, you, you know, hopefully get a job when you graduate. So I was still kind of, um, I felt pretty screwed, basically. And then, as often happens within journalism, a friend of a friend of a friend happened to mention that uh, the editor of the Evening Standard, who was then a woman called Veronica Wadley, um, was looking basically for a dog's body to research a new project that the Evening Standard um, were putting together, which was called Influentials, which they still do now. And it's the thousand most influential people in London. Um, So they just needed someone very, very, very cheap, free, uh, to research that for a few months. Um, So I went and I had another abysmal interview because I'm not very good at interviews. And I couldn't answer Kind of basic questions, what section of the paper I liked most, um, who my favorite writers were on the paper, but I think basically because I was quite keen and desperate and free, she saw something um, and and took me on and then luckily, I did that for about a month, I think, and then uh, there was a job on the features desk where I was. Moved across as dog's body to features desk Um, and I was researching features um, not writing anything at the time buying my boss's tights one day I remember Um, and then there was this kind of one fateful day when there was a news story about Ritalin which some of you may know about um, the study drug and when I was at LSE uh, I've got a brother with ADHD and he has a ready supply we had a ready supply of Ritalin Um, and I was particularly stuck on a history essay that I wanted to write. So he lent me some, um, and I took a couple of Ritalin, and I wrote a 17-page essay that um, I still remember bits of this day about the union between England and Scotland in 1604. I feel like admitting this might lose me my degree now, but it's too late because I've got my job, so it's fine. Um, And then I, um, I stuck my hand up when there was a news story, and I said, oh, I've taken Ritalin. And Veronica, the editor, kind of fixed me with a beady look and said, right, 400 words by lunchtime. So off I went, and that was my first column, and I wrote the first time I took it Ritalin um, and did this kind of and column, and that was it. And I started writing this column weekly after that, which was called A London Life, and it was never, I mean, particularly high-powered stuff. It was my love life. It was um, once accidentally going to Amsterdam on my brother's passport. It was... Uh, the reforming of the Spice Girls at one point, um, it wasn't terribly hard-hitting. But my point about all of this is um, that it was a break that was pure luck, really, um, which I know is incredibly unfair, but I say it now because for anyone who wants to go into journalism, it kind of is, it sounds depressing, but it, it is harder than ever, um, and you will need that, that break. Um, the most depressing of all I've ever spoken to on this topic is Jeremy Paxman, who I interviewed a few months ago and I said, well, you must get you know, friends, Jeremy, who say, oh, little Johnny or little Jimmy is desperate to go into journalism, and can you talk to them? And I said, so what do you tell them? And he said he tells them not even to bother, but he says that in safe in the knowledge that those who really, really want to do it will do it anyway. So that um, is my kind of tip number one today. Uh, you have to really know, if you want to be a journalist, that that's is what you want to do today um, because of the nature of the business and it's changing you kind of you can't be half asked about it a bit like I was about banking and think oh well maybe that's you know what I should do you just you have to know it's the thing for you um, having said that if you do know it's the thing for you then it is also the kind of the best job in the whole world um, I don't know how many of you guys will have read Catlin Moran's novel not the autobi- um, autobiography the novel uh, how to build a girl and some of you may roll your eyes and be suffering from Catlin fatigue because she's everywhere but she's brilliant um and the book talks about a character called joanna who uh is very young and starts off becoming a music journalist and um realizes that if she starts writing reviews and trashing bands she will make a name for herself much faster than if she you know writes nice reviews so she she basically becomes famous in the industry for trashing bands and unpopular very quickly and she realises kind of too late uh, what she's done and has this epiphany about it and there's this amazing paragraph which um, she says, where she says she's forgotten about why she wants to write and she wants to write because writing about why you love a thing is the best job in the world and, and that kind of is it really, so if you, know, you don't really want to sit in a Morgan Stanley office that smells of testosterone and hair gel and talk about steel deals all day when uh, you could be working uh, on Tatler um, and you know I remember my features meeting my first features meeting Kate the editor who some of you will have seen on TV merrily called me into her office and got everyone around and said right nipples we're going to discuss nipples are they the new cleavage and we sat there for half an hour and discussed nipples um, so much better than Morgan Stanley um, Tip number two today is where this comes in, which is um, when you get there, you kind of have to be very prepared to do anything, even quite degrading things sometimes, all sorts of bizarre stories, anything basically. Um, Just say yes. Never say no to an editor. was something I was told very early on. They're under pressure. They just want you to get on with it and do it. So I've got these visual prompts from when I was there. This was obviously me (laughs) doing that hideous maple syrup diet, um, and I lost... Four kilos, apparently. It was a long time ago. I can't remember. Um, then that was me learning to roll the skate. That was me. This is a ridiculous story. This is when I read that Madonna apparently does three hours cardio a day. So I said, oh, why don't I, you know, see if I can do three hours cardio a day. Uh, and that was that one. And then there's me rowing. And I can't even remember. I think that was, you know, just different workouts you could do in London. So um, be prepared, basically. You, um, you will be asked to do all sorts of things and just do them. Um, But then having been at this very esteemed university and having been on the standard for two years, I kind of decided that I wanted an adventure and it was the end of 2008 and things were a bit depressing in London and friends were losing their jobs and um, I decided I wanted to kind of run away, really. So I heard about this paper in Abu Dhabi called The National, which was quite new, Um, and I approached them and got offered a job as a features writer. And it was maybe a bit of an odd thing to do, because I had a job where I was photographing ludicrous things, um, and I had a column, and I was starting to build up my kind of portfolio. But I just thought, well, there's the rest of my life to be serious about that kind of stuff, Um, so why not go away? And that's tip number three, really, today, is never be afraid to go and live abroad. And this applies to journalism, but it also, I guess, applies to you know, in life, really, and I know that by its very nature, LSE is um, obviously packed with people from all over the place, which is kind of one of the best things about it. Um, but in terms of journalism, never be afraid to go and put yourself somewhere completely random. It makes it forces you out of your comfort zone. You have to go and make new contacts, new friends, forage in new areas for stories. You don't have your support network. It's completely terrifying, but that's great. You have to be terrified, I think, every now and then. Um, it stops you from getting complacent and sitting at your boring old Morgan Stanley desk, um, you know, being being bored. And it, it's kind of at the risk of sounding like a motivational poster, we get one shot at this. So I think, you know, don't sit there dreaming of more interesting things at your desk. Go out there and, and do it. Um, and then having said all that, after another two years, I, uh, I kind of miss my mum and clearly have a short-ish attention span. So I was offered a job on the Daily Mail and came back, um, not as a writer, as an editor, on the comment desk there. Um, And I know a lot of you might be thinking, oh, boost the Mail. Um, But ask kind of any number of Fleet Street journalists. Charlie would probably back me up. It's kind of, is one of the most professionally produced newspapers, if not the uh, most professionally produced newspaper. Kind of incredibly slick beast that one in six people uh, in the country on Saturdays anyway reads it. Obviously, it's got the biggest English news website in the world that a lot of you probably spend quite a lot of time on. I certainly do. Um, And and so that's tip number four, which is kind of don't be too idealistic either about when you start out in journalism. Um, Helen Lewis uh, is the current deputy editor of the New Statesman, and she was on the mail when I first started there. So it's kind of your politics can change. Um, And if you're lucky enough to get offered a job on the mail when you're, you know slightly more left-wing than Karl Marx. Go for it, equally, if you're incredibly right-wing, but you get offered a job on The Guardian, of course, grab it. Um, I can speak for the mail. It certainly won't be an easy ride, and you will have probably... I had an average of kind of 14-hour days. Uh, The stories about swearing are largely very, very true. Um, And my second day, I think it was there, it was the engagement between Prince William and Kate was announced, which was an 18 hour day, and we ordered pizzas to our desk, um, and there was lots of shouting, so much shouting. Um, but the newsroom was incredibly alive, um, and it was great. So at this point, um, I thought, have I missed any slides? No. Um, I thought it might help to talk about the different sections of places, be it newspapers like The Mail or magazines like Tatler, um, that you can go into because when I was starting out I had no idea about this I kind of naively thought right there's news and there's sports and I also arrogantly thought well news yeah I think I'm gonna I'm probably gonna be a war reporter so I can imagine myself jetting into war zones kind of filing stories with bullets nipping over my head getting out of there again and then getting home and everyone be like brilliant you're so brave and I kind of nod seriously and go yes yes I am terribly brave um (laughs) when actually I ended up uh, doing stories like this, and I ended up in features, which is way better, uh, for me anyway. Uh, kind of love being able to write and make jokes, ideally. Um, and uh, doing the longer pieces, be that on food or fashion or health or beauty um, or whatever. I remember being quite offended at one point when a senior journalist told me that I didn't seem like the doorstepping hack type, Doorstepping. stepping um, being the thing the horrid thing that journalists have to do if say someone's died in a car crash you have to knock on the relative's door and instantly get their reaction um which is a pretty hardcore news related thing really um so the sections there's obviously news there are sections within news crime health education royal beat if you want to kind of follow you know prince william and kate in new york or prince charles dressing up in silly hats um, business, sports, um, magazines on you know Sunday papers, home sections, or on magazines, you know Tatler obviously we cover mad, uh, rich and titled toffs, but you know if fishing is your thing' there's fishing monthly or your tractor or whatever it 's all still journalism um, it 's still writing and producing content that people hopefully want to read um, so tip number five is kind of have a think about what you love most because I, I never did and I kind of luckily fell into this kind of thing um, and so Tatler uh, which I love, which I've been at for two and a bit years um, which started, it's the world's oldest magazine, it started in 1709 um, and it has been chronicling the lives of the rich entitled, I think it's fair to say Ever since, and some people think it's incredibly snotty and um, outdated, and that's fine. That's you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I think uh, Kate Ridd and the editor and the rest of us work quite hard to make it funny and tongue-in-cheek and not incredibly snotty. Um, so yes, we still cover the rich and the title, but we kind of, hopefully, we have fun with it. Um, we write actually, here we go, another slide. We write stories, for instance, about posh people and their cows so um this was last month and that's claudia rothermere lady rothermere who owns viscountess rothermere sorry who with eleanor her cow um and we had another six pages of other posh people and their cows beautifully shot um so yes quite grand big house big lawn big cow um but but funny hopefully and kind of very silly and tongue-in-cheek um and then what's the next one Yes, I did this, um, Who's the Daddy?, which was a piece I wrote having read the Sunday Times one weekend, which talked about this poor guy, a waiter in Spain, who was convinced, uh, this guy here, um, he was convinced that he was the son of the former Spanish king, Juan Carlos. And um, it turns out that he lives in the village where my dad lives in Spain. So I thought, right, I want to go off and, um, and find him and talk to him and get his story. And he has an incredibly convincing story, and my Spanish is awful, so I probably missed half of it. But I did talk to him, um, and then I found various other poor, modern, illegitimate royals. There's one in Belgium. There's a man in Jersey who is convinced that he's the daughter... Oh, uh, sorry, the son of... Um, <laughs> it would an even better story. Um, the illegitimate son of Princess Margaret. Um, so again, um, you know, who's the daddy? We have fun with things. And then there's this which is this month's exciting piece that I wrote, which is, you know, so manners don't have to be boring. We've got the etiquette of the threesome here, Um, which came about because Matthew Bell, he won't mind me saying, probably a colleague who some of you will have seen on television, um, wasn't, wasn't in the office for one features meeting, but he sent me a list of ideas, and there was just this one that just said, threesomes, dash, are they as fun as they sound? Um and Kate said I don't care what you write just write a story because I want that on the cover as a line so then I uh, did this and we did a survey not incredibly scientific survey where we sent out um, <laughs> questions about threesomes which most of my friends refused to answer uh, asking things and it turns out uh, Spaniel owners I don't know how many Spaniel owners there might be here um, you are the most likely of all dog owners to have had one so there you go it's on the, news, the newsstands now um, if you want to go and buy it and read it in more detail, privately Um, on the subject of mad things at Tatler I thought now might be the moment to clear up a rumour which is about the Dax and Alan which I don't know how many of you guys saw I think he should be on the slide there he is Um, I don't know how many of you guys saw this story it was last year, was it last year? yeah, Uh, January last year he was the editor's PA's puppy we have a dog friendly office I think we have 12 dogs in Vogue House Um, he was one of them. He was very cute. Um, And there was a dreadful accident one day when he was taken out for a walk by, not the intern, as was reported, but the fashion assistant, um, out for a walk in a fag, and uh, he got caught, very sadly, in the very, very, very heavy revolving doors of Vogue House. Um, He was not decapitated, which was very widely circulated. Camilla Long helpfully tweeted it. Um, He was absolutely not decapitated. Um, He was just very sadly caught. Three fire engines arrived, um, and I remember looking out of the window and taking a photo on my phone thinking, ha-ha, this will be the best diary story tomorrow when little Alan gets out alive. Um, But sadly, he couldn't be saved, so um, I just wanted to um, report that he was not decapitated, um, because that is constantly repeated in news stories whenever he comes up. Um, And there was a new... We've got Tatler Jeffrey now, so a new accent um, apart from dogs the other mad thing that we do there is we have pretty obligatory uh, fancy dress days um, this might be one there I am um, Kate the editor is obsessed with fancy dress um, she loves it so Halloween always compulsive fancy dress and this year it was added fun because we had fancy dress and we had a fire alarm that day. So all of Vogue House, Vogue, Wired, GQ, Glamour, everyone had to congregate in the middle of Hanover Square. And you could tell uh, which office was Tatler because we all looked ridiculous. Um, I wasn't wearing that. I have been, in my two years at Tatler, a fox, a ghost, Father Christmas, in a pumpkin morph suit. And then this was for our art ball in the summer um, at Christie's. Um, but I just use it as an example um, to illustrate kind of how much fun we have you would much rather be here than at a boring old city office of some banks I can think of Um, anyway more seriously here is basically our framework this is our flat plan, this is how we work we have one of these for every single month um, and all the blue bits are features Um, they're not all my territory there's beauty, health and travel and fashion in there Um, but this basically is a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, We get a blank one of these about four or five months ahead of time, so currently we're working on April. Crazily far ahead, but Kate's very efficient. Um, And then, like a jigsaw, we work from a features list. We have features meetings every two weeks, and we then get presented with this, and we have to fill it in, and it will invariably change 500 times in a month. Um, It's completely dementing. Uh, some features will be very short, one-page pieces towards the front. Um, you'll see more spread out, and then when we get into what we call the well, which is this bit here, um, there will be longer stories, like who's the daddy, or uh, posh cows, um, or we did uh, got quite picked up a piece about the world's most expensive prostitutes last year. Or um, more seriously, we've done tax havens. Um, they will all go in the kind of meatier bit in the middle. Um, so as I said, we're on April And we work in week-long stages So currently, today being Tuesday um, We're in week one of April Which means technically, by the end of this week We should have 25% of April done Next week, we're week two 50% of April, and so on and so on Until week four, you should have 100% of the magazine done That is, in theory, what should happen In practice, it always runs a bit late um, But we get there, uh, eventually um the best thing i think about working there i was trying to think if this would be helpful i think it sounds like such a cliche but every day there as you can probably see from the fancy dress etc um every day it's different so one day i will be sitting at my desk writing a piece about threesomes another day um for those of you who saw the program i will be maybe at a castle interviewing a mad duke with a kind of hair coming out of his ears about his castle um, And in Scotland last night There was a guy, the Duke of Argyle Who was not only a Duke But he was also Scotland's Elephant polo playing champion So you meet these kind of Mad but incredible characters um, Or the next um, I may be having a lunch with a writer That Kate wants us to get on board Or the perks are pretty good So last year um, My favourite best travel trip ever I went to the actual town of Tequila. I didn't even know it existed before. But the actual town of Tequila in Mexico um, for three days, I think. I forget. Um, But for three days where we started tequila tastings at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, So kind of brutal work some days. Um, We do do serious things every now and then. I think I might have. Yeah. Um, One of the pieces I'm kind of most proud about really is this piece on ketamine I did a couple of months ago which happened because a, uh, my sister actually told me that she knew of someone, a counsellor, who was seeing two uh, 20-year-old girls for addiction to ketamine. And then another friend told me he knew of a um, kind of posh girl who was incontinent because she'd used it, taken it for so long. So I went into a features meeting and I said, well, this is happening, and more and more kind of public school kids, so the kind of audience for Tatler, are taking it. And... Um, Everyone thinks, oh, yeah, ketamine, it's just the horse tranquilizer. But actually, having talked to doctors and counselors and addicts themselves, um, there is this really hideous uh, side effect, which is, as one doctor said, it acts like a paint stripper on the lining of the bladder, which is really grim. Um, But 20-somethings are increasingly having to have pretty major operations and having them removed. Um, So I felt like it was something we should look at, and Kate agreed. So that was our kind of serious thing um, that month. On a cheerier note as Charlie mentioned um, I don't know how many of you guys watch Maiden Chelsea but I did I have blogged about it for Tatler I actually decided not to do this series having done the past four series because I just got so sick of um, the same storylines and writing about Binky's eyelashes and trying to think of new gags about Binky's eyelashes um, and new gags about the same old characters Um, but it did really good traffic for us online we Tatler out of all the uh, Condé Nast magazines um, I think more attention is paid It's fair to say to other websites Within the group, so Vogue have a big team GQ have a big team, Glamour obviously has a huge team Uh, We have a brilliant team But it's just two people Um, But Made in Chelsea did really well I think partly because Tatler's very odd in the Spread of its readership. We have incredibly young, teenage readers who like things like Made in Chelsea and they like our party pages, Bystander, at the back of the magazine. But then we have kind of older, grander, you know, Dowager Duchesses who might have read it since they were four um, and who are probably a bit shocked, I always think, about things like The Etiquette of the Threesome. Um, But they can skip over those pages, I always think, and we kind of have to move with the times. So, Um, If any of you guys have a burning desire um, to write for us, then please, please do pitch me uh, ideas. Um, Never be afraid to send editors ideas. We might be really crap at coming back, Um, but magazines and papers, I can speak for, are ideas factories. We kind of just churn through them. Um, And one of my first editors on the Evening Standard, the best thing she ever taught me, was pitch ideas and headlines. Um, don't send an email or don't go into a features meeting and I still do this now with Kate and I can see her eyes kind of glazing over don't go in and go so there's this guy and he's quite interesting because he's just launched a hat shop and Prince Harry's been photographed in one of his hats and like we should interview him it's such a rubbish way you've got limited time to kind of get an editor's attention so go in and go you know exclusive interview with Prince Harry's hat maker or, or similar on the mail it would have been different it would have been I would have gone into a meeting and gone, so, I've seen a picture of, you know, this really fat cat, and we should do a thing about Britain's Fattest Cats. Go in and go, Britain's Fattest Cats, and lo and behold, inevitably, the next day in the mail, there will be one of those ludicrous picture spreads of um, Britain's Fattest Cats. Basically, the, the gist is, you have a very limited amount of time to keep editors interested. Um, so pitch it, and pitch it with a headline, and they'll get it, and they'll see what you're talking about instantly. Um, for for writers who are keen to write for us the thing that I always say is I'm in the back actually um, have a look at what we call the front of book which is where the kind of individual pages are that is where we have shorter stories for new writers Kate won't want to commission a new writer straight off on a six or eight page feature which goes in the well she will much rather she'd be much more likely to take uh, a shorter piece so there's the front of book or um, there's this bit which well there's bystander at the back um which I think I've got a picture of. Here we go. This is what we call a bystander funny. Um, And they're tiny little things that we have below the party pictures. Um, And this just happened to be the etiquette of farting because somebody in my office, I won't name who, went to a very, very, very grand birthday party. And as she was going out and saying goodbye to the very, very, very grand birthday boy, um, her heel slipped and she said it made the world's worst farting noise. And then she was standing there thinking... Christ, okay, he thinks I've farted. This incredibly important man thinks I've farted. I didn't fart. How do I get around this? So then she apparently stood there trying to do the noise again with her heel, and she was in complete agony for about five minutes, and she should have just said, oh, that was my shoe, or made a joke, or something. So she came in incredibly panicked the next day, um, and this was the result. So again, we sat around for about half an hour discussing farting. Um, so, you know, if you go to a party, and you spot that everyone you know, is drinking blue drinks, or suddenly everyone's wearing specific pink shoes, um, those little, tiny, social observations um, are what we kind of exist on um, and sometimes we can turn it into you know, way more than that, you know, the threesome thing is three pages, madly um, so do just send me, send me ideas and I might be really slow at coming back to you, uh, but I will eventually um, and then finally I just wanted to kind of finish off with a tip that I was told by my uncle who was also a journalist, um, which applies to journalism, but again a bit like the travel thing, applies very much to real life too, which is ...kind of cryptic uh, line... ...he always said to me... ...leave your nest tidy... ...and he means when you leave a job... Um, ...kind of... I, I, ...it sounds incredibly creep-like... ...but I wrote... ...I've always written thank-you letters... ...to past editors and bosses... Um, and I've got letters back, largely, that I'm uh, very proud of. I've got a letter from Paul Dacre, the male editor, that I will keep kind of forever. It's pathetic. Um, it's just manners, and it's saying thank you, and it's um, not being a dick and kind of making yourself liked and likable and remembered. Um, and it's something that my editor, Kate, is big on manners, really big on manners. You might have seen, she has been in the news before, she gave a lecture at a school a few months ago, uh, and she copped it for saying, uh, papers reported that she said uh, manners were more important than A-levels. And it kind of, it wasn't totally what she was saying, but she, she does um, always say that manners are incredibly important because if people like you, her line is, people are more likely to help you and that really, really particularly applies within journalism. And as I said, it's really increasingly difficult to get into. Um, so I would say just just be liked and be likable and um, just bear that in mind. Um, so, and in turn, thank you guys for putting up with me, banging on for however long. Uh, good luck with everything yeah,
0: sure. so um, lots of incredibly useful life advice there I think maybe hopefully. not just for German, <laughs> well apart from the bit about the Dachshund um, yeah but lots of very useful life advice or career advice for any kind of war. Is that- um, any kind of journalism job or media job I think particularly because mm. isn't there, you kept talking about the contrast with banking because there is something um, odd about this career that you've chosen which mm. are, obviously we can leaf back through the back copies of Tatler you know, that we keep incredible history, yeah but in a sense it's ephemeral isn't it do you do you ever look sort of jealously at some of your friends who, I don't know, medieval historians or you know. No. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Sorry, I maybe should I maybe should. Um I just do think uh to go back to the the catlin thing, if if writing's your thing and um making jokes and and trying to make people laugh or not you know if serious news investigations is your thing then yeah. it really and if you get there it really is um, the best job in the world and I so remember that moment when I had to, I don't know what form it was I had to fill in some kind of form, and I just got my job on the Evening Standard, and it said job, and I got to write journalist. It was just the best moment ever in my whole life. And I'm thrilled that I did not write Morgan Stanley Banker. It's very unlikely that I was ever going to write that. Um, or historian. So, no, I kind of don't. Yeah. Should I? I don't know.
0: But and The other point is that it's the Tatler programme, um, yeah. the, the people on it were sort of different characters, very much so. Mm-hmm. But do you think there is a... Um, there was a sort of determinism, as you might say, about why you ended up there? Or do you think that... Do you think anyone could work at anywhere? Or do you actually think it's a sort of... You know, there has to be... A certain person? Yeah.
1: I don't know. I mean, we, I, I, mean I don't think so, no, ne- not necessarily. There was a stat, actually, that... Um, a TV documentary got wrong which said that 90% of us at Tatler are privately educated it's actually not true we did our own poll I don't know where they plucked that figure from was
0: 85% no it's, just, it's 99% um,
1: no it's actually only I think it um, it was 45 which I know is again really? not um, at all um, comparable to most places and well, it's fewer. still very high but it's kind of half of what they said in the documentary I think yes I mean I have obviously got the world's most stupid name um, I um, yes, I'm sure a lot of people think oh, it's so difficult that she works at Tatler writing about toffs. Um, I'm very lucky that I work there, um, but no, I don't think you have to. Ator- I mean, I constantly when a TV um, documentary was being made and I was talking, to- I was doing interviews before, people were always saying, "Are not you the poshest person in the office?" Um, and I didn't want to be disingenuous and go, no, um, I think you kind of have to own up to having stupid names. But, um, but yeah. no, not everyone in the office has a stupid name. And we don't all, none of us actually have, you know, stables of horses and big houses.
0: No, so sadly. It's
1: pretty normal. Yeah. Sorry.
0: <laughs> so questions, anybody? I should say, by the way, when I worked at Channel 4 News, there are far more people privately educated there. Loads, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Questions, anybody? Please <laughs> shout out. One down here, Dave. Yeah, I just have a question about your audience. Um, Is it mainly still like the elite of the UK or is it more like an aspirational audience? And then on that note as well, what is your international presence like?
1: Um, Good question. Um, No, it's not just... I think it is quite an aspirational read. I mean, I certainly know... God, when we were teenagers at school, were you reading it? Um, uh, Internationally... um, yeah, we. There's Town and Country in America. There are various things which, in other countries, which aim to kind of copy it. We, we try to be, because it's the world's oldest magazine and because Tatler is such a brand, um, we do try quite hard um, with international audiences um, in America. In, we, I don't know who watched it last night. We have Tatler Russia, which does really well over there. Um, the Far East, there are Tatlers. They're actually not related to Condé Nast, the brand. Um, was kind of franchised, I think, in the 80s. Um, so it's read over there as well, but it's not ours, technically. Um, so, I th- I, yeah, I would imagine probably 80%, 70, 80% um, who read it are probably, you know, as I said, it chronicles the lives of the rich and titled. It would largely be read by a lot of that um, ilk, but you know. People in hairdressers or dentists' waiting rooms hopefully pick it up and have a laugh as well because I think the thing that Kate, my editor, has tried to do since she arrived is not make it terribly snotty and off-putting for anyone who might think, oh, Tatler, that's you know, incredibly snotty, that's not for me. The thing is, yes, it talks about dukes and duchess and lords and ladies, but in a way that we hopefully kind of take the piss a bit and it's accessible to anyone. It's, it's, you can't take this world very seriously. Um, As Kate quite often says, it's a bit of a theme park. So we just want to kind of have fun with it, basically. So I hope people aren't put off, because I think it's just for
0: the elite. Has has the social media bit changed it at all?
1: Yeah, I think, um, as I said, I think the trouble with Connie Nast is um, we don't have the biggest online team. Mm. We try, and I think our social media is very funny. I think Lisa, our online editor, is brilliant, and Annabelle. I think, yeah, it's helped a bit. I definitely, you know, there's been some amazing things and some fairly awful things said on Twitter while the TV show's been on. Um, so, yeah, it's helped spread the word a bit, I think. Although TV, you know, has been the biggest thing yeah. in the past few weeks for us.
0: Yeah, exactly. Questions? Yeah, please. Hi, Aidan Ferdlin. Hey. Just out of curiosity, and perhaps this is something that you cannot answer, but what is... God, <laughs> <the, laughs> <laughs> I would understand if that was the case, but what is the editorial budget for Tatler... At least in relation to other Conde Nast publications, or because it, your um, circulation is very low, but your audience is, on on average, wealthier than than other Conde Nast titles.
1: Yeah, um, there was a lot that was said in the TV program, and um, it was a point repeated that we do have the wealthiest readership of um, any magazine. I think astonishingly, I think uh, the average income of a Tatler reader is 130 grand. I've read before which is pretty stonking, um, and Kate says at one point in the documentary there are readers who literally will go in brandishing the jewellery page into a shop on Bond Street and go, I want this, I want this 50000 necklace. Um, having said that, I, I don't know, I can't really tell you, sorry, what the budgets are. I know, for instance, that if you want to take out a page of advertising, the kind of rack rates um, that are given, I think the inside front cover is... Forty-five grand, if you're interested, uh, or twelve grand a page for you know somewhere else in the magazine. But I can't tell you, you know, Vogue gets X to spend and we get X. I just, I'm not privy to those figures. I just, I do the words, I do three symptoms and then <laughs> not do them. I write about them, um, and then our managing editor, poor long-suffering B, has to
0: sort out the figures. Is that what you meant, Aidan? Did you mean the ed- did you mean the? Oh, sorry. Is that right? Is that or what on? you meant, or did you yeah, mean? That's what I was getting at. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm always in trouble for uh, going out for lunch and um, spending a bit too much or getting a taxi. I mean, budgets on every single magazine and paper are forever diminishing. The old days of journalists having very, very long liquid lunches and not going back to the office um, are over. Um, And I remember I had a lunch with, I don't know, who saw the TV programme and saw the guy Peter York, who's brilliant, who wrote the Sloan Ranger handbook in the 80s. He's kind of incredibly... Uh, suave, chatty, eloquent, mad but brilliant character and I took him out for lunch um, a few months ago to try and chat him up to write this piece for us and B, as usual, Stern B, the managing editor, said, right, it's off. Um, can you try and keep lunch to 30 quid now 30 quid when you're trying to take out a writer to chat up is pretty difficult um, I know from the mail, mail expenses are always quite generous they were a lot more than that so I thought, okay, um, let's go. So we went to O'Bane, no drinking at all, and I had like kind of probably a starter. And Peter, because he talks a lot and he's very chatty and very eloquent, he kept ordering, he kept forgetting, he kept ordering Diet Cokes. And at one point, he had four Diet Cokes in front of him. I was thinking, oh my God, he's going to kill me because there are so many Diet Cokes here. Um, and I think I went back and it was like 45 quid or something, and I was terrified. So um, no, that only time that I come uh, into contact with budgets is over. Expenses and taxis and Diet Cokes. Sorry.
0: It's a good question, isn't it? Because uh, I don't know if it's true, but I was told by, um, I should say, I think it's best to say, a senior Financial Times Mm. employee that, I don't know if anybody reads this Financial Times at the Weekend, and they have a fantastic magazine which makes Tatler look like a, oh yeah, a cheap yeah, um, exactly down down class kind of product. They have a <laughs> they have a magazine called How to Spend It, which is a brilliant sort of tells you what it does, uh, which has got massive adverts for jewellery, which is even bigger jewellery than Tatler has. And I was told that uh, they get enough money from that magazine to fund all of the Financial Times' international bureau. So all that serious shit they do is funded by these filthy rich people. So, yeah, Which no, is a nice arrangement, isn't it? I can but believe your that, Your journalism yes. is funded by these these. people. Yeah, yeah, people. by
1: Cartier and by, yeah. yeah. No, I can believe that.
0: Yeah, it's not as good as having the jewels yourself. but No,
1: you know. if only.
0: Anybody else? Other questions? Got one down here, please. Anybody else? Just want to put their hand up so I know where you are. Over there as well, great.
1: Hi. Um, I'm just wondering, I know you were mentioning that you kind of, you try to have fun and you write articles that are sort of fun and funny, but I'm just wondering if there, like, like as a part of that, or in addition to that, if there's any kind of like overall tone in terms of the representation that the magazine strives for, for rich people. I mean, is it like, look at these great lives, they're so great, or look at how much money they waste on cows, or (laughs) is there sort of a general kind of represent, sort of representative theme that you go for with the magazine. It's, I think it's a really fine line because um, you don't want to, for instance, take the cows, you don't want to... Someone's got to. Be, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be laughing at, obviously we're not laughing at these people, they are our readers, they are, as Kate would say, you know, our people. Equally, um, to come back to the question about the elite, we don't want to put off people by kind of bowing down um, and being incredibly reverential about these people. So you kind of have to tread a line between the two of, of having fun and trying to be funny um, at the same time as not taking it too seriously. And I think it's probably fair to say before Kate joined, uh, nearly three years ago, um, the magazine did take posh titled rich people very seriously. And I think what people often say that Kate has done is to inject a bit more humour and to make it funny again and to try and not make it so snotty. Because that is, you, you just, you can't, as I said, you can't take. Uh, this section of or this class of people, you can't be too serious because it is, you know, hideous and off-putting. Um, they're very lucky, these people, anyway. So you then don't want to have a magazine, you know, banging on about how amazing and wonderful they are without some joke, you know, a few jokes in there as well. Yeah, if that makes sense.
0: Because they're not entirely stupid. I mean,
1: no, no, exactly. Yeah. And they can read, so they will read us, you know, laughing at them.
0: That's right. <laughs> Most of them. That's it. The, sorry, i kept you to say, But it's an interesting point in the, on the, the humour. I mean, obviously, where you work before, I know they're completely different products, both, yeah. both terrific in their own way. But the male, for example, is not known for its. Sense of humour. Sense of humour is it, or you know, so Britain's classic
1: cat. A sense of humour, but not the same as that. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's um, so mainly angry, isn't it? Even when it's doing lighter stuff. It's until. quite yeah.
1: angry. I was quite angry after two years of kind of 40-hour days. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, very different. It took quite a long time to get out of the mindset of leaving the mail. I didn't have very. I think I had a few days off between. Um, and going to Tatler, and the other change was, you know, I've worked. The mail every day is eighty thousand words, which is a your average paperback book. It's a lot of words to put out every day, and then going to Tatler. Actually, I don't know how many words we are a month, but thinking, and I did think, oh God, how it's going to get boring. I mean, what an easy job. I'm going to write a few sentences a day because we've got all month to get this thing out. And actually, in reality, there's so much that changes, and a lot of. Um, what we, I might start work on won't make it in. So somehow the days uh, do fill themselves and lunches with PC York and Diet Cokes. Um, yeah. But yeah, very different products.
0: Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry for not having done my research in advance, but I'm under the impression that you guys are doing a TV show right now. Yes, yeah, or... sorry, I should have No, played. so uh, how... What is this uh, So, how has uh, doing the TV show kind of changed the nature of your work? Do you feel like you 're kind of working two jobs, or has it changed kind of your um, ability to fulfill your role as a journalist at all?
1: Yeah, well, so for those, sorry, I probably should explain for those of you who don 't know the BBC the trailer we saw um, approached Tatler about a year and a half ago, or um, well, not the BBC, sorry, a production company called The Garden. Uh, approached Tatler and said we want to do a, a you know, fly-on-the-wall documentary I'm not allowed to call it reality TV a fly-on-the-wall documentary um, about Tatler and uh, I think the instant reaction was I do know why we want to let cameras in every day. Mine certainly was because I thought, oh my God, I've already got the world's most stupid name. I do not want to go on television and be set up as a posh airhead. So I actually said no to begin with. Um, and then there were various kind of negotiations with uh, the production company and the BBC and they started filming in January and they filmed us um, basically for seven months. Uh, they weren't in the office... Every day, they, were, they came out on a lot of stories. And yeah, it was quite hard because I was saying to Charlie before the talk started, or actually, sorry to Christine or um, someone, the difficulty is when I approach someone for an interview, um, people these days don't want to talk. It's quite hard getting access to people. They don't, particularly in the Tatler world, you might be going to someone's socking great big house with Picassos on the walls, and they don't want to necessarily invite you in to see that and write about it um, for various different reasons, privacy and security, etc. And then, normally, I have to say, can I maybe bring a photographer Um, and an assistant and a hair person and a makeup person and a stylist? And they're thinking, oh, Jesus Christ, what have I let myself in for? And then for seven months this year, with the TV cameras, I then had to say, and also, um, there is a BBC film crew who'd quite like to come and watch as well. So it was impossible, and a lot of people said no, Um, and my job, you know, if I was sitting here interviewing... The Duke of Somewhere, so Charlie's the Duke of Somewhere. Um, In I a way, yeah. yes, exactly, the Duke of LSE. Um <laughs> I would have to. Every journalist has a kind of process with interviews. You kind of warm people up, and you mine quite often is to witter away about, you know, myself. And doing all that with a camera is quite difficult and very strange. So it was an amazing seven months of filming. I don't know if I'd go through it again. Um, and then, yes, the three, it was a three-part series that finished last night that um, was on Posh People, and I slightly cringed at the title initially, but actually uh, kind of does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Um, and it's on iPlayer, so if any of you want to catch up with it, uh, the three parts, I think, should all still be on iPlayer. Um, and it was interesting. But, yes, I'm very relieved now to get back to kind of normal life.
0: Yeah. We're very, very pleased that you came in and talked no, about you. it. No, thank you. So thanks very much to Thank you